Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cup Duet Reviews. My name is Jillian Robinson. I am the Associate Artistic Producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre, and today I am joined once again by the incredible Ryan Brockovich, one of our co-artistic producers. Ryan, how are you doing? Doing all right, Jill. How are you? I'm doing all right as well. Thank you so much for asking. And today, Ryan and I are going to be unpacking the show Truth that is happening right now at Young People's Theatre here in Toronto on the Ada Slate stage. It is a Canadian play by playwright Kanika Ambrose. It is based on the Governor General award-winning novel, The Gospel Truth by Caroline Pignat, and is directed by Cyprian Rock, starring an impeccable cast and crew. So we are looking forward to unpack that show. But before we go too far into it, we'll do our icebreaker. What are you sipping with us today, Ryan? So I, it's, we are recording this the next morning after seeing the show on opening night, which is why you have such a nice sunshiny background. Yes. <laughs> but that we don't usually have the luxury of when we go home and record very quickly in the evening. So I'm just Indeed. having my morning coffee. And I didn't really think through what special mug to use. Usually, if there's something thematically relevant to the show that I can channel into a mug, I do that. Or if not, I just use one of our trademark The Cup Cups. But no, I just actually have my University of Toronto mug, because I absentmindedly picked that for morning coffee. And then, oh, right, we have to record this. The cups <laughs> are fun. How about you? <laughs> What's in Love your that. cup? So I have two cups going today. So usually have three drinks, but only two today. So I have water because hydration station and my fun little color changing cup. And then I have an iced coffee today with some maple creamer. And yes, for the last episode we did. Amazing. It's almost as if we live together. But yes, as Ryan was saying, I have, it's a beautiful sunshiny morning that we are recording this. So I am letting the sun come in and wash over our, our little unpacked duet review. So as per usual, Ryan, to start us off, I'm going to lob you the synopsis. Why don't you give us a little synopsis of the show that we watched yesterday? All right. So the show is called Truth, and it is set during the antebellum period in Virginia. I don't believe a specific year was ever given within the show. Maybe those who are familiar with the novel would could tell me more specifically what year it's set. Or perhaps there's something in the ad copy for the show specify that more concretely. But all we need to know is it's before the Civil War. Slavery is very much still in effect, and we are set on a plantation in Virginia. And we follow a small cast of enslaved characters, as well as the plantation owner and his daughter, as they kind of live through what first seems like sort of a slice of life segment of this is just their usual day-to-day, we get a good sense of how the property is run and the very obvious racialized power dynamics between the slavers and the enslaved. And for the most part, we are following a character named Phoebe, who is a young woman who is a mute, and she her main job is to kind of be the the serving girl, I guess is the best way to put it, for the, the daughter of the plantation owner, whose name is Tessa. And Tessa is very annoying, and a lot of the plot is <laughs> kicked into high gear when a doctor from the North, a white man named Dr. Bergman, is coming to visit. He is a doctor of ornithology, and the plantation sort of like lays out the red carpet for this esteemed guest who wants to see a very special bird that can only be found in the woods around this plantation. 
And I, because this is a non-spoiler plot synopsis, I'm reluctant to go a little further than that. We will put up the spoiler shield in a little bit, but it's all about mm -hmm. the various character dynamics between the people who make up this household in a way. We yeah. have a, another important character named Shad, who is a romantic interest to Phoebe, and he has a brother named Will. They represent very different views about how to best make their way in this environment. Will is very intent on escaping, whereas Shad realizes that he can do well for himself by being very subservient to the master in a way that gives him some social elevation within this very unjust system. We have Beatrice, who is uh, Phoebe's aunt, who runs the kitchen, and she's just also a very interesting character in ways that we'll talk about post-spoiler. Yep. And yeah, I think that kind of sort of covers the main unit. Again, I don't want to get too spoilery here. Is there anything important you would like Definitely. to add before we kind of get into that? Uh, no, I just, I think, yeah, how you mapped it out was brilliant. Again, it's on the Ada Slate stage, so the space is sort of the you get the sort of facade of the plantation and then the staging and set pieces sort of swivel and turn. So you have your sort of, I just thought it was that we can get more into that too, but a very unique use of the proscenium stage that has a lot of stagnant set pieces that were sort of transformed into different rooms of the house into outdoor settings and uh, a unique way of, of utilizing that space that we'll get into more in the spoiler. And just general appraisals, Ryan, you want to start us off? Yeah, so I, I thought this play was great. I think it's mm -hmm. it's a very strong piece. It's We will definitely talk about this more post-spoiler, but it is presented at Young People's Theatre, and I definitely will not go as far as to say that it's not a kids' show or not appropriate for kids, because I definitely think it is, and I think children should certainly see this. Mm -hmm. But it is a lot more intense and historically charged and kind of unflinching about the how horrible the so-called peculiar institution really was, and I think it is doing a great job of introducing children to this in a way that doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't yep. present it in a way there is a lot of, you know, genuine violence in this play. This is sort of sh not necessarily shown in the most graphic sense. There's a lot of tastefulness to it, but it, you know, I think we did hear children crying in the audience, yep. but I will say that's not because, oh no, this show is too scary for them. It's indicative of a genuine emotional investment that they had with this material, I would assume, having not spoken to that child. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think this is a, a very strong play, tells an interesting chapter in this history that we've, you know, as adults, we have seen many versions of, you know, these types of stories before. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's good, I think, to be exposing children to this. And it's like a very, like, rich, textured, complex story that, as I think you said when we were talking about it, has a lot of twists and turns in the plot. Yes. It's very, you know, really takes you through the ringer. I imagine kids maybe will have some hard time following all the dynamics and maybe the emotional texture that lies underneath a lot of the ways that characters make their decisions, but it's still treating them to a slice of this life that they maybe are only previously exposed to in very storybook terms. Yeah. I will say, and I definitely don't want to belabor this point because it's clearly not the point of this review, is that I think there are a lot of what we might call cosmetic similarities to another show that was very recently on stages for young people, not young people theater, but Cahoots Theater did it at Aki Studio called Sweeter, which is by Alicia Richardson. And that we just we saw that play we didn't review it here on the cup but we saw it very much at the tail end of 2023 and that was such a relentlessly beautiful show that i think 
you know, crept its way to the top of both of our top 10 lists, like at the, just like slipping in at the tail end of the year there and being in such close proximity to it, temporally speaking, just like a little over a month later, I think this play I worry might occasionally suffer by comparison, not because it's not great in its own right, and it really is, but there was... You know, if I, I don't think it's fair to rank them, but if I was ranking them, I do think Sweeter, for me, packed more of an emotional punch. And to be fair, like, they are very different shows. I don't want to do a whole compare and contrast, but that one's set post-Reconstruction, whereas this one is Antebellum. That one had a lot more magic realism elements, and, you know, there's a lot more we could relate. There are certainly, you know, ironic comparisons that could be done about various ways that emotion is wrought from chopping a sentimental piece of wood to certain ways that fire appears on stage. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't want to do the whole comparing and trash, but I do think I'm sure we will not be the only people to engender this comparison. And I do think it would be dishonest to say it didn't impact the way that I engaged with this new work so soon after seeing that one. Mm. I don't know if you have any thoughts. You don't have to follow that thread if you want, but that's No, like I agree. I agree with you too, but I also think there's, and I don't think this is, I don't think this isn't what you're saying, but I just think it's lovely seeing like something in such close succession of a different slice, a different story following, you know, a young woman of color and her story and also being a symbol or like an sort of a, a chunk of history. I think there's enough differences between the two. Like it's just, you know, maybe this is sort of an eye opening thing of, yeah, these are now becoming the stories that we're seeing on stage. So yeah, I definitely think, sure, there was some similar images and experiences that popped in my mind by watching these two performances, but they both have very different aspects of like to offer, which obviously we'll get into more about truth when we get into the spoiler territory. But before we just kind of coming back to me, general appraisal. So I, I talked about the setting and how, again, we'll get into that. But also I want to mention the direction, like hats off to Sabrin Rock. I feel like there's a lot of this. And again, this is kind of just hitting me now. I'm very glad we are doing this review sort of in the mornings. We had kind of the night to let things percolate. There is a presentational view that this piece takes like there's a lot of instances where characters are kind of like speaking to the fourth wall it's not like they're breaking it but they're just standing up against it and again this is what I'm saying with like a very sort of presentational you kind of just are taking in the character is taking something in and it very much is just this like facade and that sort of direction of having moments and experiences of characters come right down stage and then sinking back into our little scenes and then popping back to this sort of presentational fourth wall thing and then sinking back into the scenes and then charged with the soundscape and sort of the light hues doing our scene transitions, I just thought was very impactful. Like it moved me in a way that like we've seen direction like this in the past, but in the recent past for me, like I kept noticing that too, like the presentational view that this story took in the direction, which I also think is interesting being like a show underneath the roof of like a a children's theater company, you know, presenting these sort of very emotional and heavy pieces of history that most kids, thankfully, today's day and age have know about or, you know, openly spoken about. But I just think it's from having done a lot of TYA theater myself, like using that directorial 
angle, sort of like a presentational and then going back into the story. I think it allows there to be breathing room and space for kids to digest the story however they see fit, especially to some kids might be seeing the show that have never seen theater before. So I just really liked that sort of varying directorial approach to the piece. And I thought all of the actors did an incredible job of making that come to life too. And again, just hats off to, to again, having done TYA theater, like not falling into the trap of, oh, this is a kid's show. Or like you have to, like there were definitely moments where the air and the stage were light and, you know, this, we're mapping this out for audiences, little audience members too. But I really loved that none of the actors fell into the trap of making this over the top for kids. Like it was very true and very real. And like you were saying, Ryan, like that really allowed visceral emotional responses, even from our little gaffers seeing the show. And I think that's really important. Like, you know, with today's day and age, the world we live in and the media that's at our fingertips, like however old or young you are. And so I think showing these themes and unpacking these stories on stages for little kids is important. And just, yeah, like hats off to the team to really going there. Yeah. Agreed. Again, we're talking so generalized. So I feel like we should definitely jump into spoiler territory. <laughs> so we're going to have a, a little bird show up on on our screen for a spoiler alert. Great. So the bird is here. And Ryan, why do we have a bird as our spoiler? Uh, because I suppose the <laughs> subtitle for this play could have been, I know why the caged bird doesn't sing, because I think that's what, there. there's a lot of bird imagery in this play. Uh, as I think I mentioned before, that the Dr. Bergman who visits is an ornithologist, and a lot of the early parts of the plot center around finding and observing a specific bird, but also Phoebe has this little bird that was attacked, I think they said, by a cat early on, and she was nursing it back to health, and we get the obvious cage bird imagery, bird that can't fly, wants to escape, but can't, and then, or post-spoiler here, the bird eventually does escape, and so do the main characters of this play, They yeah. because Dr. Bergman isn't just an ornithologist, he's an abolitionist, this is the first big plot twist that we encounter in the play, right. and he is there to help uh, various members of the plantation who are bold enough to do so escape to freedom. That's the first big spoiler that I guess we were very reluctant to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to jump on to? Well, there? I think, yeah, just to kind of snowball off of that. So the, right, so this bird that Phoebe, our main character, sort of rescues, she places into this cage, which, again, from a technical perspective, this bird cage exists on a fly in the center stage that throughout the performance kind of dips in and out of center stage. And every character sort of does, you know, has an experience with this cage, whether it be peering into the cage, whether it be opening the cage and lifting the bird out, whether it be, you know, bearing witness to the bird and having it impact itself. And I just, from again, like a technical and a dramaturgical perspective, I really love that we had this cage physically drop in and out of the space. It almost sort of like created this, this, sort of element of magic realism like the cage is literally there but due to everything happening on the stage I think by practical reasons like it did have to fly in and out so that other settings and locations of the show could exist but because it was flying in and out and 
you know, talking about being on a fly and flying in and out, this bird is nursing itself back to eventually being able to fly out in the wild again. I just thought, what a layered technical dramaturg piece of brilliance. I feel like I could write a whole essay about each individual character's interaction right. with this yeah. king. If we could talk, since we're talking about the fly system and its use anyway, like, mm -hmm. this is kind of what I love about theater magic in this way, is that it genuinely took me a while to even realize how certain elements of this bird were being enacted on stage, because not necessarily every time that the cage was brought back down, but certainly a few times we see growth and development in the bird's healing, like it's was down kind of below and then it's a little bigger, and it actually took me a while to realize, wait, how are they doing that? Is there like somebody atop the fly grid who's like fixing it whenever it's not on stage? But then again, I think I could actually be wrong about how they did it. But later on, I realized that right before it flies back up each time, we get a blackout and there's usually the, whichever character is interacting with it is still there. So they probably just set it up for the next scene while we're in the blackout part. But like, it just the fact yeah. that I had like this genuine wonder of like, oh my God, this is so cool. Like we, when we're talking about plays with creative fly system we tend to think of like oh peter pan or wicked or yeah, something yeah, yeah. That way. you know how do they make that human fly which was also interesting then talking about the fly system is that in the near the final scene when phoebe is just about to escape and she has the bird with her mm. and you, i'm sure you noticed this too and we also looked at each other after it happened but i got there, emotional <laughs> well yeah but there was also like this piece of fishing wire mm -hmm. that we could see attached to her before we even see that she has the bird in her pocket yeah. So that as you, so like I'm also we've had a lot of fly system use in this show and I'm looking at that fishing wire like is there going to be like a big break of realism here and is Phoebe actually going to defy gravity <laughs> and fly away to freedom like <laughs> like the, the show was so grounded in realism in many ways that like that would have been a huge stylistic departure but it also kind of would have felt earned in a way because yeah. it's like that is like how do you visualize what freedom looks like in a play that has a lot of birds? But then in the end, right. it was just that it was attached to the bird in her pocket and that it was able to fly away on that fishing line, right. which was still well done. And the fact that we could see the string didn't take away any of the emotional impact of it. Yeah. And then quite literally, I mean, again, now we're in spoiler zone too, but like the bird representing Phoebe in particular, and the bird has a maimed wing and Phoebe, we learn as we get into the show that she has a scar on her face because again, spoiler alert, we find out that Master Phoebe's master, Master Duncan, is her father. And Ruth, who was Phoebe's mother, who is no longer on the plantation, was sold away. Yeah, Phoebe, Phoebe is their child. And we find out that Tessa's mother, Master Duncan's wife, who is not in the show, so presumably has passed as well, gave her that scar. So again, it's kind of quite literally named Wing and you know, named girl. And then as, as the bird flies off into freedom, again, spoiler zone, Phoebe, you know, her voice is heard near the end of the show, which again, this happens in the writing. And again, I just want to like hats off to Jasmine Case who plays Phoebe really hitting this home. The moment we hear Phoebe's voice again, I started bawling because it was perfectly placed in the case of the story, there were moments where, as you know, you have other characters, especially like Shad and Will and, and other characters that are in altercations and needing a response, a, a verbal response from Phoebe and she doesn't give it. And there was those moments I'm like, oh my goodness. And by the end, when we finally hear her voice, it was like 
yeah, it, it's an experience that is very even hard to, well, <laughs> hard to also, describe. Like, and also just because, you know, we're past spoilers at this point, like, we've, mm-hmm. we're just led to believe that, like, she medically cannot speak. Yeah, that yeah. This is just a disability of hers. And then in that moment, we find out that she could speak this whole time. But when she realized how little her voice meant to yeah. the people she tried to negotiate with throughout life, then she's like, well, I might as well not speak because it makes no functional difference whatsoever. So, and that's, you yeah. know, I facetiously said, like, you know, I know why the cage bird doesn't sing. We have this very silent prop of a bird on stage that, you know, we never hear the singing from. And, you know, our character is told, lives her life thinking that, well, I might as well not speak because what difference does my voice make? So then finding her reclaim that voice at the end is just so impactful. And yeah, it's it, part of you, part of it does kind of like make you rethink earlier scenes of like, oh, it would have been very helpful if she spoke earlier then we could have avoided some of the trouble we're in. But I don't fault yeah. the, obviously the writing or the character for acting the way she does in these decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And again, just like talking about Jasmine Case playing our Phoebe, like the sort of balletic vibe that she gives to Phoebe kind of before this moment like she only as the actor has her gestures and physicality and just every emotion it was just effortlessly made yeah like like it I was mesmerized by her performance like again just thank you for being a physical brilliant actor on that note there's something that i noticed in the program here that we don't see often in programs mm-hmm. but there's a credited historical movement consultant in oh, here cool. fairy j is the name of this individual or possibly a collective of some kind but yeah so the fact that you're like noting that a character who cannot speak has to express yeah. entirely through movement that clearly some sort of research and consultation was put into okay how do we make that probably not explicitly just historically accurate to the way people yeah. moved in this period, but really thinking through how do you communicate history through the Definitely. Lack of voice. Well, and even in some of the sort of more like poignant physicalized violence that was present in this piece, and then also in contrast, the sort of Saturday night dance party that many of our, our characters have, like, yeah, it's um, the fact that they had historical movement consultant, like, that's yeah. amazing. Well, yeah. Can, can we talk about that dance scene? Because that, yeah. to me, like in a play that's full of poignant moments, that to me seemed like almost the most poignant that even Definitely. before they escape, that there's this community that they form together that they're able to dance and sing. And I forget what the actual like verse in the song was or the chorus that they kept repeating. It was something about like making a ruckus or. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I, apologies. I don't remember the exact line, but that it's, you know, there is resistance in joy is what that scene really yep. presents for us you know like on the dancing and the the music in it so there's another actor that i know we both want to shout out yes. to play the shad here and his name was dante i uh, sorry i have it here jamat dante jamat yes mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> like okay there's so much we could praise about this character that i feel bad even starting here but the man can dance yeah his yeah <laughs> legs the way his legs move in that dance sequence is just so incredible yeah. <laughs> and the, but then of course this character has what I would call the most compelling arc in the entire show. And it's, and you know, the skill of this actor to like bring that about is like really like he starts off. So just like, I'm, you know, you know, I'm just like the fun neighborhood kid. I, he wants to marry Phoebe. He, you know, he's an interesting foil to his brother, Will, who's kind of more jaded and worldwise and wants to escape. But Mm -hmm. 
but I also just want to kind of talk about the complexity of this character's worldview, the way that he sort of like thinks that I will make things better for us by playing within the system and ascending through it. The master might even call, give me a shout out as a business partner. Yep. And uh, like, you know, by making him rich, I will succeed in a way that your silly views of escaping will not. Mm-hmm. And yet we time and time again, like we see he does frankly, villainous acts towards his fellow, you know, his family, his friends, and mm-hmm. whatnot, because he thinks that this is the way he can save them, that he yeah. repeatedly, this is in the writing, of course, but repeatedly says that, you know, part of his motivation is that I need to make the master money so that he doesn't mm-hmm. sell us someplace worse. And, it, it, like, it's, there's so much interesting complexity, psychological pathos. The chains are inside his head more so yep. than they are on the outside. And the you know his character arc in the end culminating with, or post-spoiler, shooting the master in a very intense scene where you'd like to think that he was destined to do that. We're watching the whole scene thinking that's probably going to happen. But the fact that we're not 100% sure says so much about the skill in the writing, the performance, the fact that yep. other characters on stage don't believe he's going to, which leads them to make tragic decisions in their own right. Sorry, I'm rambling. Get yep. praise because this is just so amazing. But please cut me off, say more things. No, yeah. Look, and just to kind of cap that off, right, Will, his older brother. Will is the one that, because like Ryan was saying, we don't know, is Shad going to shoot Phoebe or not? Will ends up shooting Shad because Will says, you know, Phoebe is completely innocent and... I didn't want you to, yeah, end her life. And you, we just get that tragic heaviness of brother shooting brother, which we also just recently saw Top Dog Underdog. So, and the fact that there's this scene, you know, where Phoebe just has Chad in her arms and Will is there and apologizing profusely and they need to leave because they've been, it's just like, Again, this whole piece is packed in so many, you know, weighted moments that's encased in this sort of like flitty, like, like hot temperature and bam, you're left with these sort of icy pits of your stomach. And again, just talking about Dante's performance as Shad, speaking like from an actor lens here a little bit. Ryan and I chatted about this too. Like there's characters in stories. And I actually chatted about this in my interview with Dan Rousseau of how it's really important as the actor at all times to, yes, develop your character, figure out what their life is, what their mission is, what their objective is. But all in all, you are a patch in a giant quilt. You are like a formula in a blueprint and having the sort of story arc as your main goal is most important. And with characters like Shad in particular in this story and in other stories too, there are characters that their purpose is more than just themselves. Like they are representing either what's sometimes like the entire world of the play in which we're watching, like this one character represents beyond the play, represents past, represents present, represents future. And I think that's that that existed in Shad. And again, kind of like Ryan was saying, this character kind of comes across as this naive sort of like fun, brotherly, you know, adolescent character that as we go on his arc, he starts, you know, he dons 
new clothes. He, you know, he gains this sort of like strength, this aggression, this sort of like manhood is sort of, we see him go on this journey. And as an actor that does take a pendulum swing in your work, like you are laughing in the same beat, you are laughing and crying at the same time. And I just find that is acting with a capital A for me. If you can accomplish sort of the opposite ends of the human spectrum inside of your character at the same time and also within the two and a half hours or what, however long a play is, that is ca- acting with a capital A. And I just want to really bow down to you, Dante Jamat, for just really understanding the work, you know, understanding the job, understanding the purpose and yeah, like it again, I'm getting emotional talking about it because that's our job. Like that's what we do as actors, as storytellers. And you just become a vehicle for so many things and to just execute it brilliantly and with such precision and specificity, it pays off when your character is lying, you know, in saying their last words in the center of the stage, like everybody in that audience could feel. And yeah, just thank you. Thank you for being a craftsman in this wonderful craft of acting that we are. (laughs) Anyways, that's my little micro TED talk on that. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I was going to say, like, this is kind of pivoting us away from, do you have more to say about Uh, that? I'll just do a few little micro shout outs, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yes, we've done a a couple big ones with Jasmine and Dante, just kind of looking through the cast list. Who else do we have here? Chamaka Glory, who played B, and she also doubled as an apparition or an imagined apparition of the Mother Ruth. She, I thought she was excellent. I love the thing I loved about her performance most was the way she did code switching, both like, in, and not even just in like the double playing these double characters, but as B, that she has this very different demeanor when she's talking to her fellow enslaved characters, some of whom are her family members, that is a lot more stern and intense. But then the second that she gets a call from Tessa, she puts on this, you know, very kind of mammy stereotype that is so, you know, such a huge contrast. And like, then we see her face drop the second she has to, like, I thought like that was just such a stunning thing about her performance. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. Uh, I feel like Dominique Hublot could play Tessa is such an interesting presence in this play because she's definitely, she got the annoying part very well, which, you know, texturally is the case. My favorite sound cue in this entire play was that when she wasn't present at one of the bird watching excursions and, and the doctor comments on how we might actually see the bird without Tessa scaring them away with her voice. And then the second she enters the stage, we hear the sound cue of the birds flying away, which everybody laughed. It was amazing. In her performance, I guess I, you know, while I think she was very strong in it and she played as well, I might have liked to see more intensity from her in yeah, the parts I agree, where yeah. she does become truly villainous. Like she's always had this hard edge of white supremacy overshadowing everything she did. But in the moment when she suspects that Phoebe and the doctor are having an illicit affair, which, you know, is terrible to suspect in its own right, but also still a, an okay cover for the actual thing that's happening that he's helping them escape. Yeah is like I might have liked to see her go a little harder in the villainy of that she kind of mm. becomes almost like a Disney villain in that moment and and I like yeah part of me feels like the fact that this is a youth oriented performance maybe prevented her in either the acting right. or the directing from going further with that but as scared as I was for Phoebe and the other characters in the situation there is I never felt like I was scared of her and maybe part right. of that is the point 
Right. But, you know, she's she has the power to do terrible things, but I still felt like you are still just this kind of naive child. And I, I don't yeah. know how I feel about that as an actor. It's, it's interesting. I feel like I kind of agree with you, but, and then just kind of as you're unpacking it here, I feel like there are some sort of loopholes there of like, we, you know, we get the scope, we get into Tessa's, yes, she's very annoying and kind of like a spoiled brat, not kind of, she is. And there is it right before that scene, like when she finds out about the sketches that Dr. Birdman has done of Phoebe, it's this sort of awkward, like physical enticing, almost like burlesque act she tries to do for Dr. Birdman. And it's so awkward because she is still so young and I don't even necessarily like, obviously she is young, the young daughter of Master Duncan, but also she just presents so young, like in the world at whole, like she's very naive. She constantly throughout the whole show, it's talking about how she's taking reading lessons and she's taking all these tutoring. So she's still very much learning. And I think there is a moment there is a moment of, cause I agree with you, Ryan, like I would love the intensity, but it's just popping in my brain now too. There's a moment when she, you know, Phoebe's doing up her hair and she says something of like, you know, like I'm done following by mama's rules, like about acting shy and silly. Like I want to make, I kind of want to make myself more bold in his eyes or whatever. And I think it's interesting that scene is just, can come across as just a character wanting to make a choice or like banter between Tessa and Phoebe. But what maybe also could unpack a bit there is the fact that maybe with this being the new generation, like Tessa, like of her just wanting to do things differently or wanting to question and not always follow the rules and follow tradition. And I think we find that in when she does want to expel Phoebe from the plantation, like she knows that her father probably won't do that. And that's always been tradition, but she really fights with that too. And so again, it's very subtle and it's certainly not a main scope of the piece by any means. But I think the fact that baked into Tessa's character that is comes across kind of surface layer, like there is a little bit of questioning happening. And, and again, it could just simply be questioning of her being an adolescent herself, mm-hmm. right? Similar to how we have Shad sort of take on this sort of turn of adolescent into man. We also have Tessa kind of coming into the world as a woman. And it's interesting getting scopes of, you know, different genders, different races, and yeah, just like pushback questioning. So again, I would love to, I would have loved to see a bit more intensity as well, but I kind of, again, to dramaturgically justify maybe directorial or acting choices and what the text has to offer. Like maybe she doesn't have, she doesn't have that groundedness in herself to to swing that evil yet you know or maybe there is some sort of her that doesn't want to or right and again it's interesting to unpack that i I like what you're saying you know i I said a moment ago like i'm on the fence about how i feel like this and i think you're kind of selling me more in one direction than the other which i like uh i also think something else that you brought up is the you know i've sort of forgotten about the line of i'm not going to play by mama's courtship rules anymore Mm -hmm. whereas immediately after that exchange she sees that history is repeating itself, or at least she misinterprets the situation for history repeating itself as just as the horrible Ruth seduced her father, which we obviously know historically is not what happened in that situation. But she's like, well, now the man that I am pining for is being seduced by by my own serving girl. And how am I supposed to deal with the situation? So it's also interesting that she 
goes into the situation thinking I'm going to break from my mother's tradition and leaves the situation being like, in fact, that tradition is still very strong and I will uphold it. Which yeah. I, yeah. And again, I don't know how to, what to make of that in terms of the performance, but yeah, please. Well, yeah. Um, and even knowing like the altercation or, or the sort of the confrontation that Tessa gives to Phoebe, there, there are moments that they are like, you think as you're watching in the moment where she's confronting Phoebe and basically says like, I will get you out of here. Like, you know, count your last lucky days because you're gone. You think, oh my goodness, from that moment on, like anytime they're together or whatever, like Tessa, Tessa is out to get Phoebe. But then we get scenes where there's the two of them again. And she's literally sitting at her boudoir or like at her vanity saying, Phoebe, come in here. You're the only one who can do my hair right. Right. Whereas we've heard like when potentially that same confrontation happened with her mother, look what happened to Phoebe's face, right? Violence ensued. There was that step towards you know, to, to, or like a, it, it turned violent, it turned physical. And the fact that in the, literally the next scene of the two of them, Tessa is like, I need you to come do my hair. Cause you're the best yeah. one who does my hair. I'm like still reliant on your labor, even if I have a personal grudge against you. Yeah. And so it's just, yeah, it's again, I think we say this, we've been saying this a lot about shows that are on our stages, which gosh, I love theater. What I'm about to say is like, these plays are going to be thinking about for weeks and months on end. Because again, especially with this show in particular, each individual character, I feel like, again, I could write a whole essay on unpacking why they're written that way and how they were performed the way they are. Yeah, it's quite brilliant. I'm going to pivot us a little bit to sound because soundscape in transitions, that's, I feel like that's been kind of my domain these last couple of reviews. Again, we I talked about this already earlier prior to spoilers, like the transitions from scene to scene. So again, with the Ada Slate stage sort of being the main location of every setting, and this show has us like inside the plantation, out front of the plantation, has us in the woods, but only one stage to utilize or show all of those instances. And again, I just thought this seamless transition and use of stage space to sort of transport us to each of these locations was beautiful. And again, it was all hands on deck. Every cast member has a specific place to, you know, strike and set up and all done in sort of like a nice, huge lighting stage space. And the soundscape of this show, I really do want to shout out Thomas Ryder Payne, our sound designer, because this was a show where definitely the soundscape was the non-textual, emotional, either backlash or like setup to scenes for me. Someone where music is very important to me and speaks, it's a language that speaks to me in a very rich way. I, again, kept getting goosebumps and emotional throughout the piece because it was like what I was feeling inside was represented by the sound that was engulfing the space. And I just find when a sound designer and a director sort of marry their images for what they want and it does pay off in a way that can hit on human emotions watching their piece like that, again, that's art with a capital A. And so... Yeah, it just, again, it felt like another character for me, especially in those transition moments that, like I said, were already seamless. But if there were some sort of like awkward shuffling things into place or which didn't happen often, but if they were there, what is lovely is the sound was like a character that was 
filling the space while we waited for the next uh, piece of story to showcase. But like, oh, yeah. on the subject of sound, like, well, I said that the bird sound of the flying away was my favorite just comedy sound cue in this piece. I have to give a special shout out to the Mother Courage-esque silent scream that we get yes. in one moment because, and it kind of packs an interesting different punch in this than, because I, I don't think it was done for, you know, the, you know, what we learn in theater school about the famous silent scream in mm-hmm. Mother Courage, where we know that there is a, a pragmatic function of it in that moment in that play is that one of her sons has been killed, but she had to pretend that she has no relation to him for her own survival. So if she were to scream aloud, it would mm-hmm. give away the game. Um, but then also has the more kind of meta function in the Brechtian alienation effect that it is more impactful to not hear the scream, but feel it than to actually be like, oh, this is the sound of a human voice in pain. Whereas in this, the fact that it is done by Phoebe before we realize that she does have a voice indeed, that we get just this whole extra layer of it's a silent scream by somebody who is deprived of their voice. And even if they were to scream aloud, it wouldn't be heard. And pairing it with that sound cue and the lighting change that went with it that created the aura of a scream without having it while her face was emoting the actual silence. Like, I thought it was just beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've gotten emotional <laughs> throughout this whole review. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess uh, another element to chat about is the costuming. Um, I thought, again, brilliantly done across the board. Like, as you were saying, Glory playing B and Ruth, like, she had a very stark costume changes. I think she also tripled as, like, a escaped slave as well they had like a group of folks running across so just a lot of costume changes and bodies to don by Jimaka glory and and they were stunning like i i think a standout to me is the sort of um dress that phoebe's mom ruth in like the The phoebe's mind like feathers it looked like gold feathers yeah Yeah. like gold feathers um and then on this teal dress and i think if she is sort of an apparition or a dream of her mother, and we don't necessarily know how old Phoebe was when she, but I would imagine was an infant or quite young when Ruth was sent away. And the fact that this dream and this apparition of her mother is sort of baked within the only environment Phoebe's ever known. Like we get intel that Phoebe's never left the plantation. And so this image of her mother is sort of like this bird esque, because we know that Phoebe is, she's good with birds. Um, They trust her. And, but the fact that the mother's gown is in teal and we get intel that Tessa's color palette is teal, like, like teal looks good in the sun. And so these is a very poignant color that Phoebe has only been exposed to potentially because of Tessa and her wardrobe. And then we have sort of the golden feathers again, being like a bird um, it's maybe also alluding to a golden ticket or flying or this emblem of gold. And then we, you know, we hear that, I mean, this is, we hear about this in the present tense of the play, but the fact that like the tobacco leaves, like when burned, give off this sort of like golden residue. So again, it's like this image and what she has of her mother is this, uh, like this beautiful present that is in her mind in some shape or form, but the exterior that dawns her mother is the palette of the environment, i.e. the plantation, the only world she's ever known. And sort of like this sort of 
tragically beautiful costume is a result of that, you know? Like you actually, by making that comparison between the gold feathers on her dress and the golds of the burnt tobacco, Mm -hmm. this might be a bit of a stretch, but bear with me, but I feel like the color gold is evoked in this play as a symbol for freedom that exists only within the imagination. Yeah. And I think that is sort of a linking thread between these two things that Shad thinks that by the, you know, his clumsy accident where he burned some of the tobacco and then made it more profitable in one way, that that made him feel like he has more freedom within the system because the master took a liking to his innovation in that way. But as a result, that's not genuine freedom. It's just him imagining that his social station has changed, that he can be better for himself and his friends and family because of yep. that. And similarly, we don't know what clothes Ruthie actually wears. We never get to see the real version of her, but we only see her as this imagined image that has leaves of gold similar to the burnt tobacco. It exists. Mm-hmm. It's a type of freedom that exists in the imagination. And we later find out that Ruthie has escaped, we hear from Dr. Bergman. As far it's I kind of think there's a way of reading that line where maybe he's just trying to give Phoebe hope and maybe she actually didn't. Because at mm. first it seems like he doesn't remember her. And then he says, oh, wait, I do. And I have a lot of detailed information about where you can find her. Like, right. uh, you know, the, the the nice optimistic view is that, oh, yes, he took him a minute, but he remembers and they will be re- reconciled and reunited with each other. But I feel like there's also a more cynical counter interpretation of he just knows that he needs to give Phoebe hope to get her to take these steps to actually get mm. out of there. I don't know. That's someone could write an essay on that if they want yeah. to. <laughs> But also just to like the character of Shadow we talked about sort of goes through this growth of, you know, where he starts in the play and where he ends. And like, as we mentioned, how because of this accidental burnt tobacco leaves that turn to gold, essentially, as in actual what it looks like and gaining more uh, money for the plantation for Master Duncan, we see his clothes go from, you know, like a tattered sort of slave garb into this like nicer blazer and you have he has suspenders now and a blue shirt and a hat and brown slacks but I will say which again again through like the dramaturgical due diligence of costuming which everyone knows I'm a huge fan of the color palette doesn't change for him he looks it's this he's donning the same colors it's just one step up in like a in a you know classier way but he doesn't escape sort of his color palette and i just think again there's a lot to unpack there it's like it's still the same old shad regardless of what clothes he's donning it's the person that's going through these changes and pitfalls but also to unpack there as well is just because you might have fresher cleaner clothes on your back you're still you're not escaping this sort of, yeah, you're not escaping the plantation, the, yeah. A fancier version of slavery is still slavery. Yeah, is, I guess, exactly. The, the habitual metaphor you're putting a pin on here, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, we could just keep unpacking and packing, and we will, because again, yeah. all of these shows that don our stages, like, fruitful conversation mm-hmm. con- consistently. Any other final sort of shout One last thing, and I don't know if you have a lot to say about this. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. what I have to say about it either, but it's kind of just one thing I want to maybe comment on is the title, Truth. Yeah. Because that, it's interesting. So it's adapted from a novel called Gospel Truth, 
And I guess there was maybe some sort of impulse to take the explicitly religious connotation out of that title and just make it, it's not about, you know, this sort of idiomatic idea of the gospel truth or even a literal religious inflection towards what is or is not true. And having not read the novel, I don't know to what extent that terminology is used within it. But yeah, truth is just such an interesting thing to title a play, any play, but this play in particular, because it comes up as an idea many times. There are, you know, and because it is the title, I think we are primed to pick out that word whenever we hear it, because it's, you know, I think humans have a natural impulse to want to make sense of titles and uh, mm-hmm. try to, like, pick out the details like a little squirrel that will That's the truth. Sense of them. That's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well done. And, like, while there are certainly ways that truth came up in it, and ultimately I think the big connotation of that word is that Phoebe finds her truth and eventually gets to speak her truth so she can, you know, liberate herself from the mm-hmm. the lies or the deception that have kept up the facade here. I don't know. I feel like I left the play thinking that there probably might have been a better thing to call this. And I get that there's like this maybe adaptational, palimpsestuous connection you want to draw to the source material right. by giving it a similar title. But I just think truth is, as a concept, it's a little vague. I, mm-hmm. I know, like, I think before I even heard like a description of what the show is about, I saw the the marketing imagery for it, the poster that just said truth. And my first thought, whether right or wrong, was that, oh, maybe this is something about indigeneity and truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, obviously it's not that, and that's fine. That's not the only connotation, but I think it's just has too many connotations that Mm. I don't know if there was enough of a focus on truth conceptually within this play to make it the best choice for title. Like I would say that thematically it's more about freedom than it is truth and you could have called it freedom or any number of other things. And I don't know, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. It doesn't have to be a point we need to really harp on, but it's just something that came to my mind and other people might leave the theater thinking similarly about it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think, yeah, like it's it's certainly not a bad title. And again, like you said, like tying back to the novel and like it makes sense to kind of keep keep that life going in this adaptation. But yeah, I think there there could be other titles for this play. As someone, I'm always, this is, it's funny that you mentioned like people always talk about titles. I like titles of plays I'm like infatuated with. Like I remember in theater school, like anytime I would write essays on like my fifth essay on a doll's house, I was still unpacking potentially why it's called the doll's house. Like I just like, I, it's the same way with character names, like talk about essays. I could go on and on and on of like, well, this is what's written on the page. So let's make a meal out of why. So the fact that, you know, truth is the title that we're given. And again, my wheels will continuously spin on this of, and I think a a potential sort of takeaway for me too, is kind of goes back to one of the first comments or compliments I made about this piece of the direction of this particular performance of it being the sort of presentational sort of scope into individual characters. And then you bake it into the story. Like to me, that exudes an element of truth. Like you're coming right up to the audience and like in a very sort of vulnerable, like this is my character this is what's happening behind me, or this is what happened in my past and present. And now I'm going to show you that this is why. And so sort of like, I don't know, we're given the the truth about these people, about these characters. And in fact, the fact that you were saying like the story that we saw on this stage is, you know, stuff that we've been exposed to through other parts of media or different, you know, ch- chunks of literature 
and the fact that, yeah, like each of these characters are packed with such life and growth. And it's like every motion that they exude is true. Like this happened, you know, this was the truth. And the fact that you just said we get Phoebe, our sort of our protagonist, our POV, like she speaks her truth. And there's moments, again, talking about this mechanism where she sort of steps right up to center stage and says, like, I am gone are the days where I'm going to be told what to do. Like, I am going to make my own choices and say my own voice now, like this sort of turn of this strength, this seeing her kind of like rise from the ashes. And we actually had audience members like snapping during all of that. I just think there's like a peek into the core of these characters and that core like truth, like is the true, I don't know. Again, this is kind of like an artsy way of unpacking it, but hey, we got to start somewhere. Yeah. Like, and I don't dispute any of that sort of, you could literally argue that any play could be called Truth, replace its existing title with Truth, and it'll make Mm -hmm. you think about, well, where is the truth here, and what is being truthful? Part of what I think is interesting about the fact that the title does prompt us to read into it that way is that a lot of the plot is only possible by deception and misunderstanding. Well, I was just about to say that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, please comment. Well, just like, in, like, yeah, it, it's as we're spinning these wheels, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of lies in this show. Like, you know, we find Master Duncan n- knows that Phoebe is his daughter, but never tells her. You know, Phoebe gets this bag of, you know, runaway items from Dr. Birdman and is told not to tell anybody, you know, that they're hidden. The fact, I don't know, there's just, yeah, there's like, lies, there's pivots of... Mm-hmm. Each character sort of, yeah, brings to the forefront. And well, part of me wonders, like, yeah, and just the fact that Dr. Bergman shows up under false pretenses mm-hmm. of I'm doing this, or, you know, ornithological research, but I'm really here to help people escape to freedom. And I, and that so many of the big kind of nail-biting plot twists are misunderstandings of um, Tessa seeing the drawing that Dr. Bergman made of Phoebe and thinking mm-hmm. that, oh, I understand what's happening here, but she doesn't. And the fact that Owen Shad finds the bag in the book and that he thinks he's figured something out that he also doesn't understand. And part of me wants to say that then the title of truth gestures towards the fact that in the end, all of the all of these lies and misunderstandings, the truth comes out. And right. that is what it's almost implying that's a precondition for freedom is no more lies, no more misunderstandings. Shad, I've been able to talk this whole time. I'm also not your girl. (laughs) And like, you know, just the fact that I've been nice to you this whole time, but without saying anything to the contrary, doesn't mean that we're together. Doesn't mean Mm -hmm. I want to be here as your wife when there's a whole world out there that I would rather be in. Yeah, like the truth does come out in the end. But I also, part of me thinks that there's maybe this like, you know, unexamined alternate thing that the lies under an unjust system like this indeed are politically efficacious that it, you know if the truth had never come out they still could have successfully escaped and right. I, I wonder if the title sort of giving us reason to fetishize the need for truth and speaking mm-hmm. their truth maybe undercuts some of the way that this there could have been a much less 
friction-filled version of this plot that, you know, maintained some of the deception, realizing that it's okay to lie if it will literally get you off the right. plantation into freedom. I don't know. I don't want to, you know, that, that seems like a petty or... No, I mean, thing. I feel like the fact that we're unpacking so many different avenues of this mm-hmm. title, like, it's almost like imperfectly perfect, like, yeah. truth, just like this blanket of truth. And then especially going to see the show, which everyone should go see it. Yeah, you're jumping into to a story just called Truth. And yes, and it'll tell you the truth about a chapter in history that you've maybe yeah. seen many times before, but from a different perspective, a different angle, different types of characters, each engaging with their own version of truth. And yeah, yeah. there's nothing. Well, and that. I think also, again, the fact that this show is encased, you know, under the roof of a young people's theater, children's theater, and YPT does obviously school shows is kind of like their main thing. And like the fact that the show is called Truth, like I think from an educational perspective too, if you have kids be like, did this really happen? Mm-hmm. Right. Or you have kids being like, yeah, like I don't understand. Like the fact that the piece is called Truth, like what a lovely starting point for foundational unpacking and learning. You know, and expanding. So, yes. So, definitely go see this show and unpack truth yourself. So, again, this is a YPT, Young People's Theater, production happening on the Ada Slate stage. It's happening now until February 23rd, 2024. And, again, it is a show written by Kanika Ambrose based on the novel Gospel Truth by Caroline Pignat, directed by Sibrin Rock. We will pop all details of links of how you can get tickets. Yeah, go if you have little ones in your life too. Absolutely bring them to see this. Educationally, yes, everybody needs to see the show. Go see this show. Yeah. And on that note, we can do our plugs as we sign off. So Ryan, where can folks find and follow you? No need to find and follow me personally, but if you like me and all my theater thoughts, most of them tend to live here on Cup of Hemlock Theater. It's at COH Theater on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Cup of Hemlock Theater on YouTube, where you might be watching this. Cup of Hemlock Theater podcast in the podcast places where you might be listening to this. How about you, Jill? Where can people find and follow you? Yes, amazing. Thank you again for doing the Cup of Hemlock plugs on your end, as usual. So yes, if people want to find and follow me and my artist Instagram account is jillian.robinson96. You'll see upcoming projects, covers, fun stuff on there if you're interested. But on that note, again, today is a sunshiny day when we're recording this. So get out and grab some vitamin D, folks. It is the top of February. So stay cozy, stay well, stay safe, and we will see you on the next episode of The Fun.